0: Well, this last Wednesday, we began a journey together. Not just we in this room, but we as people of faith around the world entered into the season of Lent, a 40-day season of journeying towards the cross with Jesus. We go down that long road of descent to the cross, hoping that at the end we can make the ascent of resurrection with him on Easter morning. And ever since the 5th century, that journey with Jesus has started in the wilderness. Now, that's saying something, right? I mean, Christians disagree with other Christians on a lot of things. But since the 5th century, Christians around the world have begun the journey of Lent by entering into Jesus' wilderness journey, the 40 days that he spent um, being tested and tempted fasting in the wilderness. In Luke 4, that journey begins a little like this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I love when the Bible's obvious like that. He ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end, he was pretty hungry. In Lent, we actually follow Jesus into the wilderness. We overhear the whispers of Satan to a hungry and lonely Jesus, tempting him in all the ways that Satan knew would be the most appealing. In Lent, we enter into a season where we grasp Jesus' humanity in some startling ways. His hunger, his isolation, his thirst, his ability to feel the things that we feel hot and thirsty and longing to go home to the people that loved him. If you want to talk about the humanity of Christ, this is a good place to start because there is nothing more human than being hungry and thirsty and hot. I remember growing up as a little girl in Texas, towards the end of the school year, really in the last week of the school year, we would often have something called field day. Now, for those of you that didn't have a field day, field day was the day we spent all day outside, running races and relays and competing against the other classes. And the odd thing was that they waited until May to have field day. Now, if you're not from South Texas, you may not know that summer begins there about the end of February and lasts actually through the end of October. So the last few weeks of the school year in May were full-blown summer Hot, humid, and there we were, stuck outside all day running races. Even as a seven year old, the irony was not lost on me that we waited until May to spend that day outside running. The year I was seven, uh, we spent field day outside, and it was a particularly hot day. The blazing sun made us desperate for a drink, and I was feeling just on the edge of heat stroke, which is to say what you felt any time you played outdoors as a child in Texas. It was pretty normal. So I remember going up to one of the teachers. I couldn't find my own teacher, and so I found another one, and I cried out to her. I said, I'm thirsty. That was it. That was my pitiful cry of humanity. I'm thirsty. And she took one look at my pitiful little sunburned and sweaty face and said, Without an ounce of compassion, nice to meet you, Thirsty. <laughs> and then she said, I'm Friday. And pointing to the teacher next to her, she said, And this is my friend's Saturday. Now, I didn't have the words to express it or even think of it at the time, but I remember feeling something like, Oh, the humanity. She didn't have to let me get a drink, but she could have acknowledged my human suffering. And to this day, I have never forgotten the humanity of that moment. There is nothing more human than being thirsty and hot. So here is Jesus in the wilderness with all of his humanity showing. And the devil is taking full advantage of those vulnerabilities. Hungry, thirsty, Lonely, tired, check, 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 check. Don't you know those are the times that temptations often come? If the beginning of Lent means that we head into the wilderness with Jesus, it might make sense for us to find out what he's doing in the wilderness in the first place. By going into the wilderness, Jesus is living out a story that is as old as God's people themselves. The Old Testament is full of stories where God's people are in the wilderness. They wander in the wilderness. They run to the wilderness. They hide in the wilderness. There are valleys full of dry bones in the wilderness. God's people spend a lot of time in the Old Testament in the wilderness. And so Jesus goes there and we go with him. For the people of God, the wilderness is a place of desperation, of deprivation. There there is no fooling yourself that you can provide for your own needs in the wilderness. You are utterly dependent. The wilderness is experiential. You can't read about it in a book. You can't just take a class on it. You have to walk it to learn it. The wilderness is a place where we feel lost. Any plan we might have had of going directly from point A to point B gets detoured before we take our first step. It's the kind of journey with a lot of detours and very few destinations. That's what the wilderness is like. But there's something else about the wilderness. God is in the wilderness. Charles Stevens says, For Israel, the wilderness was the school of God. When all the distractions are gone and we find ourselves alone with only God to depend on the wilderness becomes a place of solitary and silent encounter with the divine. And we learn what Israel learned. God can be found in the desert. You know, Lent itself is a season of wilderness. Our 40 days here to match Jesus' 40 days and Israel's 40 years, mirror these days that Jesus spent longing and thirsting and also walking with him on that season of preparation for the cross. And one of the ancient practices of Lent um, that we practice here is called bearing the alleluias. You should have received an alleluia when you came in this morning. This is something that the church has done historically in worship, and it is to Bury the alleluia. It means we fast from saying, singing, or praying the word alleluia all the way until Easter morning. It's a form of corporate fasting from ecstatic praise. You'll notice that uh, our worship space will become darker in Lent. So will our words, our songs will. Um, not be so ecstatic in their praise. And we won't lift up this word, Alleluia, again until we're together after Easter. So burying the Alleluia's is often metaphorical. It's, it's omitted from the liturgy. Um, it's any songs with Alleluia in them are put in the back file until Easter. But today, when we sing a closing song together, we're gonna get a little more literal about it. We're going to literally bury our Alleluia's. So there are trays of sand here, Uh, at the front, at the altar. And as we sing our last song, you're going to be invited forward. You can drop your Alleluia in or you can actually put your fingers in the sand, dig a little hole and plant it there, wondering what might grow. I read a story about a church that often had fonts of holy water at their entrance and people as they entered would dip their fingers in on their way into worship. It was a custom, it became a habit. And when Lent began... They took the water out of the fonts and replaced them with dry sand. And as people walked into worship, they unconsciously reached out and found themselves in the desert. Lent is like that. It sneaks up on us sometimes. So when you come, I encourage you, either during that last song or if you want to on your way out at the end, touch a little sand, dip your fingers in and get a little dirty. Lent is like that. The most familiar wilderness journey of God's people is, of course, of them wandering for 40 long years in the desert, trying to make their way to the promised land. And the passage that was read for us today from Exodus 13 actually takes place even before that 40-year journey began. It's a a shorter journey, a prequel, if you will, uh, on the way to the longer journey of the 40 years. In this story, in Exodus 13, God's people have been set free from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh has let those people go, and they're looking for the route to start their journey. They have freedom for the first time to choose where they will go. This is before Pharaoh comes after them with his army, before the confrontation at the Red Sea, before the parting of the seas and the beginning of that real 40-year season in the desert. Listen to these words from Exodus 13 and hear how they chose that first portion of the journey into the desert. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. God had them take the long road, not the short one the desert road, not the comfortable one, the road in the wilderness instead of the inhabited land and the shorter, more convenient route. This might sound familiar to some of you as seminary students or ministers of the gospel. The route that God has us take in life is often the long way around, not the one we had planned. And this, in fact, was going to become a pattern for God's people. Don't take the direct route, take the roundabout way. Take the hard way through the wilderness. But remember, this is just a little jaunt into the wilderness compared with the 40 years ahead of them on the other side of the Red Sea. This is like when you pack your car up for a long journey, a multiple-day road trip. You circle the block to make sure you didn't forget anything, and then you stop right away to get gas. And as you're filling up the tank right there in your own hometown, one of your kids says, Are we there yet? No, friends, we are not. This first direction by God to take the desert road, the long road, should have told them something about how the rest of their journey would unfold. I imagine if GPS had existed then, they would have heard the word recalculating a lot on that journey. This first stint on the desert road was a glimpse of what was ahead a 40 year journey on the long road in the wilderness. And if they had known, if they could have pictured what was ahead, do you think they would have turned back and run the other way? Have you ever wondered that about your own journey? If you had a glimpse of what was ahead, where would you have run? On the other hand, this shortened journey was also a preview of the journey that is to come for them, of the scenery on the not-so-scenic route, Because square in the center of this journey is God himself. This is the appearance of the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, God's promise to be with them at all times. And when God is with you, you're actually on the best route possible, no matter where it takes you. The first visit to the wilderness tells them a lot about what will be ahead on their second. The path is hard but God is good. Those two realities will repeat themselves again and again. The path is hard, but God is good. And that pillar will not leave, will not dim, even when things are at their hardest and at their worst. This was just their first experience in the desert. And I believe that God used it to prepare them for that long journey stretching out on the other side of the Red Sea the seemingly unending desert where God would be their only companion and their only provider. The first desert journey prepared them for their second, almost like a training ground. This isn't the only time in the Old Testament that someone went to the desert twice. There's also in Genesis the story of Hagar, Back in Genesis, if you remember, Abraham and Sarah had a slave girl named Hagar, and she once ran away into the desert because her mistress, Sarah, was mistreating her. She was pregnant by her master, Abraham. Now, that was no surprise to anyone. It wasn't even that much of a scandal. It was something that Sarah herself had cooked up and then resented when it happened. And so, as she abused Hagar, Hagar ran away into the desert. You know your home is bad when the desert looks like a better place to be. When Hagar got to the desert, she found that God was there in the desert with her. I mean, her, an outsider, a foreigner, a slave girl who had no lineage in God's family up to this point and was still cared for by God. And that when she wept in the desert, this God Heard her and came to her and cared for her. And then he sent her back home. Even though the journey was hard, he told her he would be with her, and he was. She went back home to deliver that baby who was Ishmael, knowing that God was with her in a real and powerful way. But later, when she had given birth, surprise, another baby, Sarah's own Isaac, was on his way. And you can't really have two heirs in one home. So Sarah again mistreated her, and this time sent her off into the desert, really sent her to die with her son. This time, God didn't rescue Hagar out of the desert. He moved in with her. He sat with her in her pain, in her desperation. He made the desert a place she could live and that her son could grow up. And Hagar, even before the crowds of Exodus, went into the desert twice, Hagar showed us how one journey into the wilderness could prepare us for a second. Two trips in the desert, the first one preparing them for the second. I was was here in Estes when Jennifer delivered her first testimony in 2017, and boy, she had been through a lot already. And like many people here, I thought, that is one strong, amazing woman, And within just a few months, we would witness during her diagnosis and her treatment strength that she probably wished she didn't have to show. Um, Jen, I think you sort of preached the sermon before I could. So I loved when she said, the wilderness is where you have to decide if you believe your own testimony. Sometimes one journey to the desert is followed by another And another, sometimes like Hagar, you end up taking up residence there. Hagar goes twice into the desert and finds God there. The Israelites will go, not once, but twice on their 40-year journey, and they'll go confidently, well, confidently and a little complainy, because God has already showed up. He's already showed them once that he will be with them on the desert road. Jesus, too, will take a trip into the desert and find that God ministers to him, cares for him. His 40-day fast in the wilderness is also a preparation, a prequel, an encounter that prepares Jesus for the tough road ahead. Where, you might ask. Some of you are flipping through the gospels already. Where, you demand, where does Jesus go twice into the desert? Hagar went twice, the Israelites went twice. Where is Jesus' second visit to a wilderness, the longer and harder road that that 40-day journey might have prepared him for? The first days of Jesus's ministry here in the desert are actually preparing him for his last days, for the wilderness of the cross, the one that would be filled with the same sorts of things, isolation, thirst, torment, temptation. It may not look like a desert, that cross, but make no mistake, in these first 40 days of hunger and thirst and isolation, Jesus faces temptations in the desert that he will ultimately face again, already having conquered them when he's on his road to the cross. A place where we'll hear him cry out like he may have in the desert itself, that cry of humanity, I thirst. Something even a seven-year-old can understand. Reading the Temptation story in the wilderness, we get a glimpse of the road to the cross beginning even here. The temptations Satan offers in the wilderness will be very present and very real at the cross. Those temptations are the temptations to shortcut the path of suffering, to take the short road instead of the long one, to go around the desert way instead of through it. In the 40 days in the wilderness, Satan offered Jesus the temptation to gain power without pain to reach the heights of authority without suffering, to go without God instead of with him. That journey proved to be a training ground for the harder one ahead, and it proves, just like other training ground wildernesses, to be one where God can be known, maybe more than in the field or the forest. God does his best work in the wilderness Because in our desperation, we have nothing else to turn to. The wilderness is a training ground, an image that we need to remember when we are isolated and hungry and filled uh, with a desire for our own appetites instead of God's. If you find yourself waiting or wandering or lost or recalibrating, if your journey looks a little more like uh, the picture we have on this slide... Any of you on the top plan? I haven't seen anybody on that one lately. If your journey looks a little more like the bottom half of this slide, perhaps you are preparing for something, something no GPS can map because it's being formed on the inside of you, not the outside. Perhaps there is something on the other side of your wilderness you can only face if you and God go through it together. You find that in a place of deprivation and dependence. It's why we do Lent. It's why we fast, to remind ourselves that we're dependent on God, to remind ourselves that no matter what we're going through, God is there, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the Son of God on the cross with us all the time. In my first season of Lent as a pastor, I was tasked with leading the Wednesday night Lenten Bible study. Uh, That meant that every Wednesday night, I showed up at the church, and eight older saints, seasoned and wise, who had probably been at every Lenten Bible study since before I was born, showed up, and I was supposed to be their teacher. That's a joke in the church. When you're supposed to teach the saints, they teach you. In our study, we were looking at the journey to the cross, and a verse from Philippians 3 showed up, the one that said this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And we were all kind of puzzling through that verse together. We we wanted to know Christ, but why in the world would we ask to share in his sufferings? None of us had ever prayed to suffer before. We wanted to emulate Jesus's kindness and compassion, his victories, his prayers, but his suffering? Why would you pray that? I want to share in his suffering. None of us really wanted to suffer, so we didn't understand, and we were talking over a part of the Bible that didn't quite make sense. There was an older woman in our group. Her name was Maureen. She couldn't attend every week because she had to find someone to sit at home with her husband, Bobby, who had suffered a stroke and needed someone to care for him because he was bedridden. Before the stroke, Bobby had been really active in the church, an alive and vibrant personality in the community. And life after the stroke had been hard on Bobby and Maureen, but it had also been hard on the church. We weren't used to seeing someone so faithful suffer like this. And Maureen was usually quiet in Bible study, but as we talked about this passage and why we would pray for suffering, she spoke up. She said, you know, Bobby and I were high school sweethearts. I can hardly remember a time that we didn't love each other. We've had four kids together, 10 grandkids. We belong to each other. We love each other deeply. But somehow, since the stroke, we've had to rely on each other more than ever. We've had to be vulnerable with each other. He's had to learn to be taken care of, and I've had to learn to care for him. We've had to suffer through this together, and it's made us love and appreciate each other and everything we have, and I think I love him more than I ever did. And then she said something that I'll never forget. She said, and I think if I had to choose between life with the stroke and life without the stroke, I would choose the stroke. There was almost a gasp in that little room of people. I mean, we, we knew intimately what she was going through, what Bobby was going through. I wasn't even sure I understood her. I'm not even sure I can now because I haven't walked that wilderness. But that was the moment that Maureen was our teacher. After she said it, she was quiet again, but I could tell she meant it and that Maureen and Bobby understood something different, about God than I ever knew before. We were learning from 1 Peter 2, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Lent begins with Jesus going 40 days into the wilderness. Will you go with him? Will you bury your alleluia a little deeper so that you can be in the sand of the desert? to go the long way around instead of the convenient one, to identify with God's people who wandered that way for 40 years, to tell us again, while there isn't a way around the hard places, there is a way through it, and God is there. And to remind us that while God doesn't cause our suffering, he never wastes a drop of it. That even in this season, when we find out if we really believe our own testimonies, God is with us, and we are not alone. In a moment, I'm going to ask Jennifer to come and share uh, her gift of spoken word poetry with us before we sing our last song and bring our hallelujahs forward. But now I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, I have no idea of the wildernesses gathered in this room, those that have been passed through, those that are current, and those that are to come, but you do. And you never leave us alone. So Jesus, thank you for coming to journey with us. Help us to journey with you. Help us to descend to that place where you suffered so that we can rise again with you on Easter
1: morning. Amen. There are times I'm forced to see the barrenness Inside of me. All the things that will never be. Things too broken for science to fix. Plans that can no longer exist. In the valley of dry bones and dried up dreams. Hope long forgotten. Life left long ago. Will it return? Only you know. The name of this place is scarcity. When I emerge from it, who will I be? Abundance or just an empty shell? Together or broken? I cannot tell. I feel as cracked and dried up as the bones in this place. Hope's dead so long they've been bleached by the sun. Our fate's settled, done. But God is a tomb robber digging up graves and setting their captives free, restoring even those who are nothing but bones. He breathes into us and we come alive again. He connects our tissue, covers us in skin. All our tears are in his bottle. All our times are in his hands. He turns them into desert streams and rivers in the wasted lands. Breathe into us, O God, repair these cracked, dry bones. Breathe into us, put your spirit inside. Breathe into us, make us fully alive.